0: Sydney Environment Institute and Sydney Ideas, in association with the Post Truth Initiative, present Carbon Capitalism and Communication Confronting Climate Crisis with Chair Alana Mann and panel led by Benedetta Bravini with Christopher Wright, Terry Waranov, David Ritter, and Kari Norgard. Well, good evening, and thank you for being here tonight for a very special occasion. The launch of Benedetta Bravini's edited collection, Carbon Capitalism and Communication Confronting Climate Crisis. Before we commence proceedings, I'd like to acknowledge the Indigenous custodianship of country. I think this is a particularly important acknowledgement considering that Indigenous people all over the world will be disproportionately affected by climate change. And that's particularly in the case in Australia where not only will we have hotter summers, longer droughts, rising sea levels, we also have Indigenous people on the front lines of extractive industries, which is very much what this really important book is about. I'd also like to welcome our fantastic panel. This is such a pleasure to introduce and to... I'm looking so forward to hearing from these wonderful speakers who are also friends and colleagues. Joining Benedetta in the panel tonight is Kari Norgard, on my immediate right who's visiting us all the way from the US. She is an Associate Professor of Sociology and Environmental Studies at the University of Oregon, actively researching the social organisation of denial, particularly regarding climate change. And some of you might have been fortunate enough to attend the Sydney Ideas presentation that Kari gave last week. And we were also very excited to welcome her in the Department of Media and Communications to give a masterclass. So thank you, Kari, for that. Our other speakers include David Ritter, the CEO of Greenpeace Australia. On, his, on Benedetta's right, we have Professor Christopher Wright, who himself is a published author And an academic at the University of Sydney Sydney, writing about the same issues that are confronting us, this nexus of climate change and capitalism. And finally we have Dr Terry Warrenov, Senior Lecturer in Anthropology at the University of Sydney who has lived, worked and studied in China, Hong Kong and Taiwan for many years and who also is working with Benedetta on several co-authored projects. So at this point, I would like to thank Meredith for organising the Sydney Ideas event, as she always does so well, and also Deputy Director of the Sydney Environment Institute, Michelle St Anne, Eloise and Anastasia, who are really always uh, consummate professionals in getting something like this happening. And I would like to thank the Sydney Environment Institute and the Crisis of Post-Truth Discourse this course Sydney Research Excellence Initiative run by Professor Nick Enfield, which has also contributed to the funding for this event. So without any further ado, I would like to introduce our editor and author, Benedetta Bravini.
1: Thank you, Lana, and thank you, everybody, for being here. The book is here, it's arrived. Okay, so... Green friends, and eco-activists, and um, I love this, fruitcake fringe, um, and eco-terrorists as the courier Mail love to portray us. Thank you so much for being here tonight to celebrate the launch of Carbon Capitalism and Communication, the book that I've been editing uh, for the last two years with Graham Murdoch, who is following us from London. Um, many thanks also to all of you, but also to the panelists that kindly agreed to participate and to carry for making the trip also from the US to be our respondent tonight. So a few weeks ago um, at the UN Climate Summit in Bonn, Germany, the Trump administration um, made its official debut with a forum pushing coal, gas and nuclear power the presentation was entitled The Role of Cleaner and More Efficient Fossil Fuels and Nuclear Power in Climate Mitigation. The panel was the only official appearance by the US delegation during the UN climate summit and in our uncertain post truth world I can reassure you that this is and this really happened. So this is real. In a staggering turn of events, it was the only pro-coal event, which is good news. And the good news is that in the next, um, new pledges were made by 19 countries, including Mexico, New Zealand, Denmark and Angola, for the Powering Pass Coal Alliance, which is led by the UK and Canada. Australia is not part of the initiative for reasons as yet unknown. So despite these pledges, the same governments that have signed on to the Paris Agreement on Climate Change um, continue to provide public funding to fossil fuel projects that could cause the world to exceed the famous climate target, certainly the 1.5% degree Celsius and the 2 degree Celsius increase. A new report by a coalition of NGOs found that the G20 countries provide four times more public funding to fossil fuels than renewable energy. Four times. Just to give you an idea, that means about 71.8 billion of US dollars of public finance for fossil fuel projects per year between 2013 and 2015 compared with just 18 billion for renewable energy. When talk is cheap and action is missing, the role of communication systems becomes even more crucial. Communication systems play a crucial role in the climate crisis. And I would say they play a crucial role for four reasons, at least. Firstly, as the major space of public representation and debate, they are key agency organizing or disorganizing public understanding of causes, consequences, and possible solutions. Not surprisingly, recent research has confirmed that the media are currently the primary source of climate information for policymakers, rather than their more subjective sources, like, for example, science, scientific papers. Secondly, As predominantly commercial enterprises dependent on advertising revenue, the media actively promotes an ideology of accelerating consumerism that sustains the ecologically destructive pursuit of economic growth. Thirdly, as assemblies of machines and infrastructure, they deplete scarce resources in their production, consume increased amounts of energy in their use and exacerbate the problems of waste and disposal. Fourthly, In their alternative and oppositional forms, they play important roles in organizing and sustaining opposition, protest and resistance, and in securing support for ecologically sound, sustainable practices. As a series of recent interventions have made clear, including Naomi Klein's book, This Changes Everything, the present climate crisis is rooted in the current organization of capitalism and its dependence on carbon-based sources of energy. The pivotal role of communication systems is orchestrating public debate and crafting resonant images, as we discussed last week, in a key link in the chain connecting capitalism and the current crisis. But we should be reminded that at the moment, and what is absolutely crucial here is that the production and consumption of public information and imagery depends on communication infrastructure and machines for underground cables and satellites to widescreen television sets to laptops and tablets and smartphones. With the expansion of the cloud and the rapid development of the Internet of Things, communication systems are likely to make greater calls on energy and scarce resources, increasing the contribution to the crisis. The transfer of user data, for example, from flash drives and other portable storage devices to the massive servers farms that constitute the cloud significantly increases demand for both power to operate the facilities and water to cool them. The increasing application of robotics and artificial intelligence, the Internet of Things which connects an increased range of smart domestic machines and devices to communication networks, will again impose substantially increased demands on network capacity and power supplies. So our book, um, Communication and, and um, Carbon Capitalism, um, aims precisely at highlighting these two crucial links of communication development under capitalism. I am indebted to the scientists, journalists and activists that generously gave the time to make this book possible, from Michael Mann, architect of the iconic stick graph, demonstrating the acceleration of global warming, to Naomi Klein, that gave her time for an interview, and Alan Russ Bridger, the former editor of The Guardian, which launched the crucial Keeping to the Ground campaign, to Blair Palis from 350 degrees, and David Ritter here tonight from Greenpeace. And thank you also for my fabulous research assistants, where are they? I can see Hannah there for checking and sub-editing 100, probably more, proofs in the last two years. And to Rachel Lee. Uh, where is Rachel? I never find her when I need her. Um, so now, let's reveal something more about the book. I give you one of the most illustrious contributors, Chris Wright. Thank you. Thank you.
2: Thanks very much, Benedetta, very generous of you. Um, And thanks for the opportunity to speak very, very briefly tonight um, at the launch of this very important book, uh, addressing what I consider to be, um, and I guess most of us in the room would consider to be, the most important issue we now face as a species, the climate crisis. But also, how can we communicate this issue in order to drive some form of meaningful response to this existential threat? That seems to be the critical challenge. So uh, my quite small contribution to this book, really, uh, is an interview that I conducted with um, leading political critic and activist Naomi Klein uh, in 2015, late 2015, after the publication of her book, This Changes Everything, Capitalism versus the Climate, uh, and shortly before the publication of her own book. which had a fairly similar title actually, Climate Change, Capitalism and Corporations. So uh, it was a great opportunity to to speak to one of the leading thinkers in this field Um, and in the chapter you can read the interview with Naomi uh, and her insightful reflections on what's driving the climate crisis, the bad timing um, of the political awareness of climate change with the rise of neoliberalism and disaster capitalism uh, and, and many other things. So just a few words on, on that, I guess, and where we are today. In retrospect, I think her insights in her book and in the interview are perhaps even more timely today than they were in late 2015 in the era now of President Trump uh, and, in a sense, an era in which disaster capitalism is now on steroids if we just look at you know recent events over the last year. So forget the Anthropocene. Um, we seem to be stumbling through the train wreck, which is the Trumpocene. Uh, and uh, it's um, some pretty ghastly news, just in terms of just the last weekend, that budget announcement that they're going to be opening up parts of Alaska, the oil drilling, for instance. Uh, so, so, how do think about climate change and communication in this pretty scary era? Uh, well, firstly, I guess, one of the interesting sort of issues that comes up at the moment is the debate about how to communicate the climate crisis. Uh, And particularly this good news versus bad news sort of debate that you see in social media, on occasions when scientists, for instance, talk about the latest species extinction, or uh, the latest pretty disastrous prognosis for where we're heading in terms of carbon emissions uh, and likely uh, global warming. And when people do raise this this type of concern, for instance, um, David Wallace Wells' piece in the New York Magazine earlier this year, uh, quite a Powerful article, I think, called "The Uninhabitable Earth." Well worth looking up. It went viral when he when he wrote it. It was the uh, most circulated and read article New York magazine's ever produced. Uh, and and the 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 synthesis of that article was to say, well, what would a worst case scenario look like in the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years on the Earth? And it's a pretty scary um, projection that he portrays, and it's based on some pretty hard science of what four degrees C would really look like in terms of uninhabitable parts of the earth were simply too warm to exist. When that um, when that article came out, there was a strong pushback against it that the message he was portraying was too alarmist. And this wasn't just from the usual suspects in the climate denial uh, community, but it was also from some scientists who said, well, what will happen if you portray climate crisis in that form is you're going to turn people off, they're going to throw up their hands and say it's too late, we're screwed, um, and uh, they're going to disengage. Uh, rather, the, the argument was put that we need to maintain hope and we need to preach more about all the good news that's happening out there, um, the, the Paris Climate Agreement, the renewable energy investment, et etc. et cetera. What my climate activist friends in the UK term, hopium, which I think is a fairly accurate sort of uh, argument. Uh, so this is all great, but 30 years of that messaging hasn't got us very far, um, Uh, in terms of delivering any noticeable reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. And I'm not sure we've ever actually had a genuine mainstream political discussion about the bad news scenario that we're now facing. Um, So we need to make people aware of the risk, the actual risk of of what is at risk if we continue with business as usual. Uh, And that's certainly what drives my, my thinking and teaching, that the current pathway is basically incompatible with organised human existence. And we need to sort of Start at a mainstream political level, taking that fairly seriously and having a serious discussion about that. Uh, so we're in a harm reduction phase, and as Naomi Klein points out, you know, two degrees is pretty catastrophic. Uh, it's bad, but three degrees is a whole lot worse, and four degrees doesn't even bear thinking about. So how bad do we want it to be? Uh, and and that should, I think help to drive some of the action that we, we badly need. There are some positive signs amongst the gloom, and again, in the interview with Naomi Klein, you'll see she talks a bit about blockadia and the rising social movement against new fossil fuel frontiers, mega coal mines, tar sands processing, etc., cetera, uh, and, and some victories that are happening from the grassroots, which I think is quite powerful. And we've seen that, of course, in Australia recently with the Adani campaign. Uh, but this is never an even fight. This is a fight um, where doing nothing and ignoring the climate crisis, as many in business schools, for instance, around the world do, just pretend it's not there, Um, that enables us to continue with that magical thinking that we in the affluent West can just keep on doing what we're doing and there'll be no bad surprises and life will just continue. It's very easy, it's very seductive. But what we need to do once we're aware of the problem is to continue to push the message, I think, of the need for dramatic decarbonisation. And again, what is at risk is pretty well everything everything that we love and, 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 um, and take for granted, I guess. So I'll just finish um, with a quote um, from a previous and earlier environmental visionary, Aldo Leopold. In fact, we included this quote in a chapter in our own book because I think it captures some of the problem that we all confront once we're aware of the climate crisis. Um, so Leopold says, one of the penalties of an ecological education is that one lives alone in a world of wounds. Much of the damage inflicted on land is quite invisible to laymen. An ecologist must either harden his or her shell and make believe that the consequences of science are none of his or her business. Or he or she must be the doctor who sees the marks of death in a community that believes itself well and does not want to be told otherwise. So in terms of communication and climate, I think we need to be the doctors telling, um, telling the, the community that all is not well, that all is, is very... Uh, very much uh, at risk, and push that message even harder. Thanks very much. Thank you,
1: Chris. So we'll give you Terry Waranov. Thank you, Terry.
3: So, um, thank you so much for uh, inviting me, Alana and Bene, and I'm very grateful to have an opportunity to... Um, Thank everybody for um, inviting me to be here and to be part of this discussion and part of this amazing book. Um, Benet asked me first to write a PowerPoint, which I have now done, and second to speak on the chapter that she and I co-authored, and to speak specifically about some of what we did in order to write this chapter, and an ongoing project that is linked to the work of the Post-Truth Initiative that is part of the sponsor of this talk and of this um, gathering. And I thought I would just take a few minutes to tell you about what we're working on, um, which is a little bit different from the... Uh, kind of broader questions that Chris and Bene addressed um, just a few minutes ago. So we started in early 2016. We ended up meeting and getting together because we shared an interest um, before it was a front page topic in the problem of the Carmichael or Adani mine in central Queensland. And at the time when... uh, we got together to talk about it. That required a great deal of introduction on our part when we talked to other people, and I think now that is no longer necessary. I assume everybody here knows what the Adani mine is and has some idea of the issues at stake. That wasn't true about two years ago when we first got this started. Um, But our question was, what is going on with this mine and the discourse in the politics and the media around it as it was becoming more and more known and as it was being shoved through the various kinds of permissions and... Um, policies that are necessary for it to get the permits to exist. And in order to study this, um, one of Benny's research assistants is Rachel actually here. Rachel and I um, spent a deeply unedifying six months reading every word from the Hansards, from the House, the Senate, and the Queensland Unicameral Chamber, as well as every word published in uh, five major media outlets in Australia about the Carmichael mine. And um, if you are feeling that you have an excess of mental health, I can recommend this as an activity <laughs> that will just disimbue <laughs> just <about laughs> that um, very, very quickly. So we read all of this in order to get an understanding of just what's being said, what's out there about the mine, and how do we interpret it. And what we found is that among the many, many forms of interpretation we're doing on this data that we've now gathered in the hundreds of pages of it, that one of the issues that we found is that The Carmichael Mine and the Adani Mine provide a very, very good example of post-truth politics. And there are two things that we found that we could say in this chapter and that we're expanding on in future work. First, the very basic finding that post-truth politics are not confined to the U.S. and U.K., where all of the original research was done um, on this topic. Now, this may seem self-evident to people in Australia who read the Australian media. Clearly, post-truth is alive and well and kicking in the Australian political context, but this wasn't, this hadn't been said before, so it was actually a finding that we had. And the second is, there's more to post-truth than just telling lies. There's actually, it's actually a very complex discursive kind of form of communication. And we were very interested in how the Adani mind provides examples of the different kinds of discursive strategies that together posit a kind of post-truth discourse together. And so our findings in this article, in this chapter of this book, were three different aspects of post-truth, which, of course, are all interrelated. And I just wanted to give you some examples. So one of them we found, um, we use the word truthiness that we take from Stephen Colbert and the Colbert Report. And one of the things that he very clearly says is truthiness is a logic of gut feelings, not of fact. It is a logic that says that we go with what feels right and we go with what feels good. And what we found in much of this discourse is that a lot of what is said about coal in Australia is that it is essential for Australia, the Australian way of life, and it is un-Australian to be against coal mines. And that this is not based in any scientific or economic facts, but it is a gut feeling at the heart of political discourse and much public discourse about the mind, which is how we get people like Tony Abbott eating a lump of coal. And um, was it Barnaby Joyce or Scott Morrison who brought a lump of coal into Senate? ScoMo. ScoMo. It was ScoMo. Yes, here's a lump of coal. Don't be afraid of it. It is the bedrock of our entire economy and our nation, which is not true, but it's a logic of gut feelings. And I, I have some quotes here because people who are not familiar with the discourse might find these um, quite interesting to read. The second strategy that we found is um, to create doubts about facts or to just make them up. In other words, to lie about things. One is the use of zombie facts. Now, zombie facts, if you're not familiar with the term, comes from another comedian in the US, Bill Maher, and it is a completely inaccurate fact about this world that will not die in the public discourse. It is circulated over and over and over again, even though it is not correct. And around the Adani mine, it is the zombie fact of 10,000 jobs, which is always the underpinning of political support that it is going to create 10,000 jobs. It's not. The economists for the Adani Corporation themselves testified in court that the number of jobs created will be between about 12 and 1500. But this zombie fact of 10,000 jobs simply will not die and is still out there. or to simply lie. So for example, um, Anastasia Palaszczuk, who thank God just won her election as we know, did make repeated promises that said that Queensland taxpayers will not fund the project and that every um, safeguard has been put in place to protect the environment and protect the ad- aboriginal landowners. That is three lies in a row. Um, there are no safeguards for the aboriginal owners, the Wangan and people who have just filed another suit in federal court in Brisbane against this mine. Um, The conditions applied to it are not stringent and have all kinds of loopholes. And Queensland taxpayers will not be funding infrastructure because all of us will be funding it through the NAIF. So rather than Queensland funding it, every other taxpayer in Australia We'll fund it as well. And the third strategy that we found is to smear without evidence. And we've done a lot of work on this, of the ways that the politicians have used this vilifying language to accuse people who are activists for the environment or against the mind of being radical green activists, um, echo activists and they've also created, and we've written about this in, a, in the second book that's coming out, about oxymorons and the new kinds of oxymorons that are produced in order to confuse people, my favorite one of which is vigilante lit- lit- litigation which is a wonderful oxymoron that George Brandis popularized back in 2015, and the use of these terms in order to demonize the opposition. And so those are some of our findings about what constitutes post-truth in Australian discourse and how this mine provides us with um, a rich source of material to understand the changing political discourse around coal mining and around climate change. And I think my five minutes are up. Thanks. Okay. Thank you.
1: Um, excellent summary. I don't know how you, you put it through, like summarizing the entire chapter and two chapters, five minutes. Two yeah, chapters. actually, two. <laughs> yes, because we have a second book that is coming, coming out next year. So, yeah, we've been working really hard to get this message across. So, now I'll give you David Ritter, that everybody knows already, um, CEO of Greenpeace Australia Pacific. Thank you.
4: Thanks, Benedetta, and thank you for asking me back because um, what friends, not all of you, maybe none of you here will know is the last time I did a speaking event with Benedetta, uh, she wanted me to speak for, I think, 20 minutes. There was a miscommunication and about four hours later um, I stopped speaking when the room was completely empty. Um, I promised to I promised to keep to less than five minutes. Um, I was slightly shaken, though, by... Uh, just noting that I was coming to a university that makes the promise of unlearning speaking at something (laughs) called the Post-Truth Initiative and that when I checked the website details for where the event was this morning, the website told me the event had already passed. (laughs) In keeping, I suppose. Look, I, I... I decided, I guess, to, to jettison what I was sort of going to say, to talk about some things that were more immediate, because we are all thinking all the time about Adani and stopping Adani as we should, and there have been some particular developments that pertain to this subject of post-truth, so I'll get onto to those in a moment. But just first, in relation to Abbott, um, one can't resist. Um, I think we have just such an interesting example of post-truth with Abbott, and I think I hypothesise, it might be easier to make sense of Abbott if you think of some of the things he says, not in that sort of strange, forced, hyper-macho reptilian voice he normally speaks in, but if you imagine him speaking more in the uh, sort of idiom of one of the stoners from a film like Dazed and Confused. So if you imagine him saying, ''Yeah, man, cool man, it's really good for humanity, man.'' It all sort of starts to make sense. <laughs> Significantly, when Abbott has his particular diversion, to, uh, conversion to coal, because there's no surprise that Abbott is on the side of, you know, big business, and vested interests. But he has this sort of quite peculiar, particular conversion to coal, where he starts talking about it and using words like faith. In coal. And then he starts equating coal with Western civilization. And you realize this is about much more for Abbott than just political economy. It's that he's actually part of this sort of almost cult like. Uh, uh, way of thinking about this black rock that becomes venerated. Remember, after all, the Minerals Council ran a campaign about the miraculous black rock, and you've got Scott Morrison. I'm sorry, but I'm actually not going to use affectionate-sounding nicknames for appalling politicians who are uh, uh, acting against the public good. Lifting up the, the rock in Parliament, I don't think it's at all far-fetched. I think it's actually a, um, a useful analytical insight to recognise that that Abbott is in a mental state, like someone who is participating in a cult. And so when he goes to London and delivers his
2: amen
4: speech about coal to um, that awful society that spreads untruth or fake truth or truthiness or false truth or just straight-out lies about global warming, that is the mindset he is carrying of someone who is in this um, uh, cult-adherent state. But I was going to say a few things about the latest developments in relation to Adani, because they so evidently fit the script. Um, We uh, fringe, fruitcake fringe, was that the phrase? I mean, I'm very fond of fruitcake, and I struggle to have a fringe, so I don't actually mind that. Description necessarily terribly much. So, we fruitcake fringe have been uh, pointing out uh, that there are all sorts of problems. Eco terrorists would work better. Well, that one I have some problems with because the strict ethic of non violence rather precludes the the latter. Um, Have been pointing out that there are all sorts of problems uh, with uh, the Adani mine uh, climate, environment, water and so on. And for that reason, all four big banks in Australia have ruled out funding the mine. But it emerged that Adani were hoping to uh, get funding from one of two of the largest Chinese banks. Now, uh, Adani made some comments publicly that uh, indicated that this was more or less a lay-down misère, a fait accompli, Uh, this funding was going to flow, this financing was going to flow. And obviously uh, none of us greeted that with good news at all and uh, uh, there was a flurry of of activity of people um, uh, wanting to be in touch with the relevant decision makers in those banks to point out the way Australian banks were not funding this project and so on. And curiously enough, on the weekend, uh, the uh, larger of the two banks issued a statement to, um, the, to Market Forces, which is a, another NGO working on their Stop Adani campaign in Australia, indicating that not only did they have no intention whatsoever of supporting the Adani mine, uh, they never had. Now, Jeff Cousins, um, who, uh, my uh, uh, good colleague Jeff Cousins, who's just finished up as president of the um, uh, Australian Conservation Foundation, came up and said, came out and said, well, this is a lie, simply another lie, they lie all the time, there's just been a uh, string of lies. And I think uh, one might choose different terminology, but I think it's very hard to argue with that conclusion uh, given... Um, What was said. If ever, if ever there is an example of um, fake truth being uh, on the loose and the uh, zombie facts um, concept being useful, uh, it is this mine. Uh, We must stop it from going ahead.
1: David. So now um, we have Kari. So thank you for reading the book and uh, agreeing to participate. Thank you. Thank you.
5: Yeah.
6: Thank you to everyone that's here, and um, it really is an honor to be asked to uh, respond to this um, to this book. And I want to especially thank everyone at the Sydney Environmental Institute, especially the fabulous Michelle Saint Anne and uh, Louise and um, Anastasia, who've been doing tons of backup support, and I'm really impressed in the time that I've been here with the level of collegiality of my colleagues who I'm learning from this past week, um, and and uh, just intellectual capacity. This is the kind of thing that we need in this moment that we're living in. We need to have good minds and people with good hearts who take care of each other. So I want to start by noting that um that this book uh which I've learned a great deal from in the last uh, uh, several days that I've been spending some time with it um asks us and gives us the opportunity to think about two things not just one thing that people don't want to think about climate change, but two things that are very taboo to talk or think about, climate change and capitalism. What fun! (laughs) So um, my work is on the idea of the social organization of denial and the idea that a central reason that we're not doing more in response to climate change is not because people don't know and not because people don't care, but because climate change is such a deeply disturbing problem that we have actually all kinds of ways individually and collectively of ignoring it and pretending that it's not going on. In addition to the stuff in the sort of so-called climate skeptic movement, the post-truth is just not happening frame. And, um, while I don't know the particulars here, I certainly know how difficult it is to talk about capitalism in the United States, and uh, Naomi Klein now famously has been quoted, I don't know if, if you all are heard this so many times that you can't think about it, but that it is actually more difficult for us, it's easier for us to imagine the end of the world than it is to think about a world without capitalism, the end of capitalism. So, um, so these two topics go really well together. And I think that uh, these the difficulty we have in thinking are related. And this is a really big piece of the value of this book is um, giving us one of the things that we need in order to do this kind of thinking. There's many things we need. But one of the things I think we really need is we need to have very specific particulars about um, how to do that, how to talk about Capitalism is not a, even a monolithic thing. It is something that is progresses in phases. Uh, human nature is not a monolithic thing. Neither is nature in the natural world. Neither is all these things. And so having um, an insight and, and being able to develop an actual language of how to talk about what we mean and nuance um, with all of the rich chapters in this book is um, is really a gift. And um, I had some more prepared comments, but I don't do very well reading from things. I'd rather just um, uh, sort of skim through them. So, um, so one of the things that um, that really struck me in reading this book is, and um, Benedetta alluded to it, sort of talking about the four ways that communication structures matter uh, for climate change, is the ways that um, that communication systems have deeply shaped and been a part of enabling capitalism. So we, I in particular, am living in a country where we are right now having a major attack on a certain incredibly important form of the media, which I think most of us are more aware of this function of the media in relation to climate change, getting specific information out there you know what how much emissions happen from australian uh from australian coal what are the what are the impacts of those emissions uh, who is responsible very sort of specific factual pieces what's happening with the adani mine what what are the what's the next step this matters and as somebody who is living right now in a country where those systems are being disabled um, where the government has removed uh, information from websites, where there are overt attacks on the media, um, where there are overt attacks on climate scientists and social scientists as well. I am intimately aware of the importance of this role of the media. But as well, um, there's this book is filled with lots of other rich information about the way that the media and communication structures shape Another thing that I think is even more important for our ability to respond to climate change and understand what's happening, and that is our ability to understand who we are and how we imagine each other. One of the things I've really appreciated, I haven't been in Australia for a long time, but there's so much um, warmth and friendliness culturally. There's lots of joking, and people are very kind. I'll be on the subway with my mother talking about how we're going to get somewhere, well, and people will turn and say, oh, you know, here's this is your stop. There's this kind of goodwill and warmth that you all have, and um, and, it, and it matters, um, because one of the things that's happened in my country is there is a progression of cynicism about who we are, who each other are, and this serves, um, this this fear-mongering and fear-divisiveness serves the powers that be in very very real ways. So the media and communication structures have um, put out different kinds of ideologies about whether there's a public, whether (laughs) there's a public at all, or we're just consumers, Um, in addition, of course, to encouraging us to think of ourselves as consumers, to spend our mental and emotional energy consuming rather than listening to one another and figuring out and thinking about what are the particular places that we can spend our um, intellectual and emotional energy in service of the world. And so I learned a great deal from this book about the way that uh, communication structures fundamentally shape our ability to imagine how we see ourselves, can we see ourselves as powerful actors, do we understand that we are living in a world of incredible inequality whereby, in fact, it does matter that I got on an airplane to come here, but it may matter even more the actions of, um, individual, of, um, of, of people, CEOs, and our ability to think about how do we intervene in, in terms of stopping particular, the kind of work that David Ritter gets to think about and do in a, in a big, big way. So, um, Let's see, what else was I going to say? I think I want to say something about um, one of the pieces that I think is very important in talking about capitalism and climate change per se is that we are infused with a language of that, that climate change is happening. You know, we have emissions, we have um, transportation structures, we have carbon footprints. It's a very individualized uh, discourse around, around uh what's happening and why we have what's going on. This is a discourse that benefits those who have much greater power than any of us in this room to shape what's happening. And our real ability to engage um, with social change and if we are going to get to any future other than what it looks like the business as usual, we have to figure out how we are going to use our intellectual and emotional energy um, together to do that. We have to understand as well that it is not just about changing our individual carbon footprint, but that this is also about the kind of system in which we live, where we actually are required at some level in order to function to have certain levels of carbon footprints. But, but the fact that Australia is the largest uh, coal exporter in the world is a very significant thing, and we need to understand that, or you all, this is part of your political opportunity here in this country. I have my own problems and there. They, they feel a lot bigger than that one. So you all do me, do us a favor. You take that on, we'll do our part. Um, but we need to understand that this is not, um, that it's not inevitable. It is not inevitable that we are on this path. Um, and that it is about structures that shape our, our, uh, and constrain our possibilities that are actually not in in our interest for the most part. They are in certain individuals' interest, but the kind of wealth inequality that we're on, the kind of accelerating wealth inequality. I, would, I work, um, I've done this work on um, the idea of social organization of denial, but for the last uh, decade and a half, I've been working pretty actively in an indigenous community that is very clear about the fact that these structures and the violence that comes in their lives with capitalism. Capitalism is not inevitable, even though we're told to believe and that, that we can't imagine anything that, that's beyond it. In fact, it is has been enforced, enacted, and upheld with extreme violence against humans and ecological systems at every juncture, and will continue to do so. And we need to be able to talk about that and think about how do we reclaim our own imagination and our own um, agency in the midst of that. And um, so, let's see... Um, I guess the last thing I'll say um uh so I just found this book incredibly useful in in furthering all of these goals. Um the last thing that I'll say is um I think, um, and this is one of the things I wrote, is as it unpacks capitalism and communication structures, ultimately this book moves us forward regarding the most important challenge of our time, how we will and should meaningfully imagine our present circumstances from here and how we can move forward on a path towards human and planetary survival. And this makes it a very significant contribution indeed. I will say I do believe we in this room have a great deal of privilege uh, there are others that want us to believe that we're paralyzed and have no agency is something that's happening a great deal. It's part of the explicit strategy of the Trump administration is to try to paralyze, um, us in the United States, um, by this dizzying array of dismantling of our democracy and our, um, our, our ability to conduct our lives. Um, and, and when we experience ourselves as powerless in this way, it's, who does it serve? And so I would say that Um, There's these debates about how do we communicate information about climate change, and yes, it is terrifying to look at the data. Um, I don't believe we have any choice. It's our moral imperative to figure out what do we do with this moment that we have, and um, this book is one uh, very valuable piece in doing that. So, thank you.
0: Thank you, Kari, as well. So, we are starting the Q&A. Yes, I think we shall. So thank you all so much. Uh, we've heard a snippet from each of the panel members now, so I'm sure that you've got some questions uh, for them and uh, we do have roving mics, so if you need to, if you would like to put your hand up, you'll, um, the lovely Eloise will bring you a microphone and please uh, make sure it's a question. We don't mind a short comment, but questions are really good because we've got these very, uh, if you like, I would say, you know, I don't think that you all would consider necessarily yourselves experts in the traditional senses of the word because expertise has got a bit of a bad reputation in our post-truth zombie facts world. But you're certainly so deeply engaged with the issues and I think that your personal commitment is really evident reading the passages in the books the book, and I congratulate you all. So over to our first question.
7: Hi, um, my name is Howard Witt. I'm with the uh, Citizens Climate Lobby. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, Sydney Environment Institute and the Sydney Ideas for hosting these great events. There's not enough events about climate change. Um, sounds like a great read, so that's probably my next book. My last book was Richard Dennis's Clearing Affluenza, and if anyone hasn't read it, I'd recommend it. And I'm saying that because it does lead into the question, I think we need to separate that sort of consumerism and affluenza from the idea of market mechanisms. So I think we do need to stop being such a consumerist society, but we, need, we still, I believe, and Citizens Climate Lobby would maintain, we need market mechanisms in place to get um, a switch to renewables in the time scale that we need. And so we suggest a price on carbon, a very extensive price on carbon to drive the economy to renewables, to accelerate the transition to the clean technologies of the future. Uh, so I'd like the, the panel's view on that. Can we separate the mechanisms in that way? Um, and um, yeah, the other point I'd like to ask the, um, Christopher Wright about um, we need to understand the inaction. Uh, people need to understand more about the consequence of climate change, sure, but if we stop there, we only promote um, inaction. I believe we need to also be solution-focused. And I think that uh, the the community of um, communicators should think more about focusing on solutions, and one of them should be a price on carbon. So that's my question, if you'd like to address those points.
2: Uh, Yeah, no, thanks for that. Um, Look, I agree... um Pricing carbon emissions, putting price on pollution is probably a very good idea. And it's, I guess my take on it would be it's necessary but not sufficient. Um, If we look at the sort of levels of decarbonisation that are required to avoid two degrees, uh, and Kevin Anderson's work and Glenn Peter's work recently charting that sort of pace of change is is truly frightening. Um, My own conviction, and I don't think it's politically realistic, is you almost need state... Um, prohibitive regulation on prohibitions on fossil fuel extraction and use. That's the sort of level we're at. I mean, if we look at the IPCC projections uh, that come out of the Paris Agreement, that assumes the invention of technologies around carbon capture and storage, which we don't have. Um, so I come back to hopium again. We're hoping we're going to have a technological fix for these things around carbon capture and storage. Um, so, yeah, I um, I agree. Pricing carbon and probably carbon tax of some form or, or putting a price on that pollution is necessary, but it's not, necessary, not sufficient to where we need to be. Uh, the, the other point I would just make there is that, uh, yeah, sure, um, we need to be talking about solutions, and I think one of the solutions is not really a solution. One of the responses we really need to engage mm-hmm. with is the complete failure of government and the state to think about what a transition from a high carbon economy might look like. And that's a sort of a a flip back to what we used to call industry policy. So the the just transition from a fossil fuel economy to a renewable based economy, energy economy, requires dramatic intervention by the state and, and, and planning around what would that transition involve and how can we create industry policies that drive that transition instead of the complete abrogation from that space around energy and climate that we currently see on both sides of politics, truth be told.
1: Yeah, just, just following on that, I would like to add, like, the, the OECD just published a report precisely highlighting the kind of public funding that from the G20 to you know, OECD countries is going in, uh, like, towards funding uh, fossil fuels projects. And, uh, like, when you see that there is a staggering uh, four, like, like it's four times the the amount of money that is spent, public funding spent on renewable, you actually understand that there is a really a contradiction, you know? You see the same states um, signing up to the um, climate agreement in, uh, in Paris, and then you see them investing and keeping investing highly on fossil fuels. And this is also where, actually, the media play a very a crucial role, because... I mean, I would like to know how many of you have read this OECD report and the report um, on the G20 investments, for example. Raise your hand if you've read it. That, that okay. counts. So that at can't. least I have one person. Yeah, two. <laughs> yeah, so this is a, a great example of that, I, I guess. Not
6: I just would say that um, I def- we definitely need to be talking about solutions. I think it's... Um, if you want people to do something, it's not a matter of you you, know, you tell them what it is that needs to be done, and that's how you can mobilize people to do it if there's no direction that we're going, then how are we how are we going to get there right? I think that a big challenge in our current moment is um it's very very difficult to imagine what what those would look like, and of course it's much easier to defend the status quo and say, oh this is not possible in terms of or who it was that said what was politically feasible. Clearly anything that's considered politically feasible is not going to be adequate given what we see now. But I think that, um, so that's where the public becomes involved and um, people through organizations as well. This is where we need um, the public to be involved to change what, what is politically feasible and raises huge questions about our democracy. Citizens Climate Lobby has been, to me, enormously inspiring. And I I know Mark Reynolds a little bit, who started in the United States founder. I don't know, I'm thrilled to hear it's here. The things that I think are really powerful about Citizens Climate Lobby is it has a model of really strong grassroots activism Engagement. I, I want, I would encourage everyone in this room to look it up and to think about whether this could work for you. And it's, this is very grassroots based. I don't know entirely what's happening here in Australia, but in the United States that's the case. And they, and they lobby on both sides of the aisle. They are nonpartisan and the idea is really, um, on the combination of having grassroots, um, engagement, making climate change more visible at the local and, and level and then also working, um, at the national level to try to get a carbon tax passed. And, um, I definitely think a carbon tax is a great idea, and I would second chris's um, uh, response that is is what we need is a starting point it's not going to be enough, but one of the things that's happening for certainly in the United States, and it sounds like it's here as well is that um, the fossil fuel industry has so controlled um, our government and our, our le- the terms of our debate, and so mechanisms that move us along and change that direction are are going to help us take the next step beyond that and certainly keeping um keeping fossil fuels in the ground and all of these things. So i i think we need to both continue to have larger conversations about the feasibility of capitalism but it's not like it's not like we're going to it's not like it's just sort of going to go away in some mythical what, whatever uh, the society is changing all the time and we need to be a part of making those changes and talking about what changes we want and need. And yeah, it's not going to it's not easy but it it could be fun. Um, A couple of questions.
0: First of all, it's my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, that we have already reached the tipping point or we will be reaching it very soon, and it's looking very difficult to be able to stop it. So um, the other question has to do with a book I came across. Perhaps I was feeling... uh, Desperate at that moment, but the book said how to cool planet and there were all
8: kinds of technological Experiments or research on ways Really crazy ways some of them, but what
0: do you think about that? Is it possible? Will science save us we take a few, take a few and come back fantastic. Thank you very good questions
9: Hi um uh i'm andrew i'm actually do a little bit of um for the city environment institute uh just um a question regarding the i guess the the applicability of the of of kind of the post truth framework um what that kind of means to climate change today um one thing i guess that kind of uh concerns me about this idea of post truth is that it's kind of um you know it seems to at the same time go against people like populists who are kind of twisting what's what's true in, in the popular media, but it's also going against kind of what the left has been talking about in terms of postmodernism and whatever for like 40, 50 years already. Um, I guess my question is, um, is it not also kind of technocratic uh, solutions to climate change that have been already tested and proposed for decades, um, most markedly in market-based mechanisms, that are themselves guilty of promoting these kinds of post-truth ideas of like, you know, just a couple of tweaks to um, to the market here and there and we're going to solve this climate change problem. I would kind of propose that maybe um, uh, a more radical solution that involves not even just kind of regulatory f- uh, frameworks and, um, and taxes and prohibitions, but um, much more radical challenges to the political economic status quo um, would actually be a lot more, I guess, consistent with um, with what's required of climate change and of this moment today. Um, yeah, and I just that's just an observation and maybe a provocation if anybody wants to reply to that. Thanks. Or could be taken as a comment.
0: I think, yes, and I will use my chair's right to call it there just for a moment to give you a chance to respond to those three things. First one was the question about the tipping point which is a very difficult one, cooling the planet with science, Some of the, how technology might be able to solve our problems. And that last one, I think you're talking about a really very transformative political economy solution to sort of breaking the system. I'm not sure. Let's see.
4: So look, just on the question of tipping points and binaries, I think another of the sort of communication and thought structure problems we have when we're talking about global warming is this idea that we sort of lose or we don't. We save or we're lost, um, we're redeemed or we're damned. It's not like that. Um, There are species that are gone now. There are uh, villages that will never come back. There are people who are dead. Um, and we're going to experience more and worse because there's there's global warming that is locked in by the amount of carbon we already have in the atmosphere. But that doesn't mean we can't always have an ironclad conviction that we will get to the other side of it, that there is still a better world, a, a more fun world. I've not heard it described that way. Um, maybe maybe you said fun on the way getting there. But there's, there's a future flourishing that is still to be won now, that doesn't mean that, for example, the Great Barrier Reef's going to be better next summer, but it does mean that 100 years hence, if we, if we get our act together, that we, might not, we may well be able to see the renewal of the reef. We are, we are in a time of, of, if you like, of grey. and just I've used this analogy before and others have used it. it. it is I don't like military metaphors because of the whole Greenpeace thing, but in wartime you accept that there is loss, you accept that terrible things happen, but you still maintain the conviction that you get to the other side of it and that you build something on the other side of it. And and that is where we are. It's, there is no sort of binary uh, approach to things. I think that that makes sense. On on the question of techno fixes, the the problem I'm afraid is that they're not necessarily actually fixes. Um, and I mean I think uh, there are probably others on the panel who've looked at this um, uh, uh, in far more depth. But what tends to happen is that those who are in favour of um, Sort of big polluting industries then tend to also be in favour of big techno fixes. Um, because, and this takes us on to the, the question from the speaker at the back if you kind of have a sort of view of the world that there's some big technological, not particularly people or biodiversity um, focused solution to things, um, then that sort of tends to allow you to skip from coal or uranium or whatever it might be to pumping stuff into the atmosphere or dropping iron filings into the ocean without stopping to pause, thinking about humanity for a moment on the way through. Um, And just just very quickly, my my friend up at the back, I love that we are at a gathering where someone goes, "Yet a moratorium on coal might not be radical enough. I love that. Um, look, I think there are, there are multiple versions of what capitalism is. Right? I mean, what what capitalism was in 1978 is so unimaginable. To pick a year, is so unimaginably different to what capitalism is now. I mean, we, ha- we you can never measure against historical counterfactuals, but a sort of a backpacking along sort of social democratic or even Eisenhower Republican world would look very, very different. Uh, the, the problem of climate change would look very, very different in, in that world. Um, right now, I'd just be really, really happy if we could get that moratorium on coal. We are way past market mechanisms. I heard the other day, as I was at a protest, a bloke walking past me with another bloke, one said, oh, what is that asbestos? And the other bloke just said, no, mate, it's coal. That is where we are. Coal kills people. It is killing uh, the place where we live. It's got to go.
1: Okay, well, I'll uh, I'll actually... I have to admit, I've also loved the idea that probably the moratorium on coal is probably not enough and not radical enough. And, uh, Andrew, and um, I personally think... As a communication scholar, that we need also a proper communication revolution. And, um, and uh, for instance, for example, I've been um, meeting recently with the community of activists, and I could really I, I, got, I convinced myself that actually um, they are getting it right, progressively more right, because the problem is really trying to move from an individual discourse that is based on uh, a super-neoliberalism that normally uh, portrays individuals just as, you know, selfish um, people driven by their own interests that cannot... deliver anything which is communal. So the concept of the commons for example is one that I find can be very useful here Um, at the same time I think really trying to reinforce um, not only the idea of giving positive solutions but also the idea that we are in this um, struggle together and we have uh, we can have a communal approach to this and we have to find um, a new way to address this. But actually the the other issue that I wanted to highlight is that always, like, the struggle also with the book was that defining capitalism is not that easy, defining neoliberalism is not that easy. And if we look at the history of neoliberalism, we saw and we see that actually um, the US neoliberalism of the 50s or the 60s was radically different from what we are facing today. So there are actually um, ways to correct the market, there are ways to regulate the market. And whenever I use the word regulation, my students look at me and they look at me as if I was a communist policymaker that wanted to change uh, back into you know the, the country into something uh, that resemble Russia and um, of the 80s so um, I'm just saying that there are ways to regulate this, there are ways actually to um, like uh, decide on public funding in a different way to encourage renewable for example in a different way and uh, I don't think we should be afraid of saying that the selfish individual way of conceiving capitalism is not working
0: Okay, over to Melinda. Hi there. Uh, I'm Melinda. Uh, I'm an
5: activist with the Stop Adani movement. Uh, My question is, when the Adani project doesn't go ahead, uh, how can we make sure it's not just another Franklin Dam activism effort and finally use the momentum to communicate and create systemic change to prevent another Adani, albeit with a new corporate logo?
3: When the Adani project finally doesn't go through, which hopefully will be sometime really soon, like before the end of this year, one of the things that I know that is that many, many organizations around Australia are working on now, um, and this speaks again to your question in back about um, changing the way things work, are trying to overhaul the entire setup of the environmental laws in Australia and to take down the EPBC Act and replace it with an entirely new mode of regulation and governance. And so hopefully one of the things that can come out of the Stop Adani movement and the way that it has um, caught the imagination of so many people around the country is it can then move into some momentum to completely scrap the environmental laws and rewrite them so that instead of protecting the fossil fuel industry, we actually protect the nature and the um, amazing natural resources of this country instead of exploiting them. So that's a possibility. Keep your eyes out for that. And for the next election.
6: And Carrie? So I'm certainly no expert in terms of the political strategic opportunities here, but I would say in general, one of the things that happened, you know, we had a major mobilization with Standing Rock, and although that was um, not successful in the sense that there's oil flowing through that pipeline, it was enormously successful in terms of the way it it mobilized and the the way it politicized so many indigenous and non-indigenous youth and, and adults in our country and around the world. And so I would say, work on building relationships. Keep you know keep those relationships. Uh, Take everything you learn. Continue, um, especially building relationships with indigenous communities. I think that there's. um, I know that the the landscape is a little bit different um, in terms of how this works here, um, both because of differences in rights and the way that the racism operates here. But there is a kind of moral authority that um, and and. that that many Indigenous people are able to speak from that can be incredibly compelling and mobilise other people. That's certainly one of the things that's happened in my life and and, and certainly around the Standing Rock movement. But I would say in general relationships, build build them and continue building the movement from there. And thank you for your work.
4: I love that you introduced yourself as a Stop Adani activist. Isn't that a badge to wear with pride, right? And there are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Australians who would happily describe themselves, introduce themselves as I'm part of the Stop Adani movement. And that is a wonderful thing. And that has been built by people, for people, because there is a vacuum of political leadership and it's a stunning thing to behold. And when Adani is stopped... So in addition to the the law's answer, I'd suggest three other things... The first is that it's fundamental that there be some principled basis upon which there are no more Adanis that is actually about a legislated moratorium of no more coal. And it's, I think, fundamental that that, that governments commit to that. We, can't, we do not want to be fighting this mine after mine after mine. The second thing I would say is that uh, beyond that, we actually have to look at the mines that are currently producing coal We're at a stage with the projections where we cannot simply allow these mines to continue going until they run out of coal. We need to make the active decision to close the things because they're killing people. And because at some point the mines do have to be closed and will be closed. And so any communications to the communities, the workers who are invested in that, is a lie to those communities and workers because there is no future in that work. Frankly, even if there wasn't climate change, um, mines want to fully autom- mining companies want to fully automate anyway, but that to one side. So that brings us back to Chris's point about we actually need serious industry planning around what are we going to do, how are we going to do this in a way, that we look after our own, that we look after people and communities um, in, in that transition. Um, so, uh, and then I think that the third thing really is that we are the world's largest uh, coal producer, um, but there's also one of the world's last great untested oil basins in the Great Australian Bight. We love calling things great before we go and smash them up. Um, We have to not let drill rigs get there. We have to stop that before it becomes the next great carbon catastrophe in this country. And then finally, we are on uh, projection to become the world's largest gas exporter. Now, in terms of zombie facts or zombie ideas, one still occasionally hears, well, gas can be a bridging fuel... We are so far past the point where we can think of gas as being a bridging bridging fuel. So um, it's not just fracking, it's a whole lot we have to turn and we have to decarbonise the entire economy. So don't worry, you'll be plenty of other ways to introduce yourself in the future, and me too.
8: (laughs) Um, I'm from Community Radio, and I interviewed uh, George Monbiot the other night, and he started talking about this thing of communications, and he said we have to have a, a restoration narrative. He said we had Keynesian economics, which restored after the First World War and Second World War, then we had neoliberalism. They also portrayed themselves as restoring things for all the entrepreneurs, and now they've failed. And we have to find, he said, now we've fallen into a gap and we don't have the restoration narrative. So I'd like to ask you how you envision that. What is the restoration narrative? Don't tell me motherhood stuff, but really a real restoration because we're talking about economy, not just capitalism, but growth un, you know, and so on.
1: I was giving it to Carrie because I thought that I love to like, for her to tell her about, um, you know, the findings of also of um, um, her living in denial book, and also the suggestions how to rebuild. Uh, Communicative restoration moment, in a way. But I'll, I'll tell you also what I think, and then I'll pass it to Kari. Um, if um, Terry and you know, and Chris want to jump in, um, I think, yes, yeah, that's true. But uh, um, at the same time, I think we have to work um, on uh, two major projects here. On the one end, we have to rebuild a collective discourse. And again, you know, not a neoliberal individual discourse, but a collective one. And this is for sure one of the first, uh, um, objective and aim. And we have to work together towards this aim. But the second problem we have is a structural problem. And this is what the book is trying really to argue and to claim strongly. So, um, communication systems are are actually based on structures of power as well now whenever you pass a new law like the new um you know regulation in australia that further deregulated the media system in this country which is by the way probably one of the highest concentrated media environment in the world then we have a major issue because we can together with alternative media blogs, uh, social media through you know, different engaged uh, um, activist groups we can build this collective discourse but then if mainstream media uh, are still uh, creating through fake news and misinformation a sort of a a wall towards that collective discourse, then we have a huge issue, and this is where structures of power become relevant and legal frameworks and regulation becomes crucial. So, I mean, it has to be an effort that brings us all together, but we can't forget that actually we can only do so much as uh, as people and as activists as well.
6: So... Connie. Thank you for the question for your work with community radio. That's incredibly important. Um, I wasn't 100% sure what you mean by the restoration narrative, so please maybe there's follow up if I don't if I don't speak to what you're hoping for. I do think that we need to so we need to talk about what it is that we want. This is again similar thinking about structural level, what it is we want, but um, but what are the opportunities in the moment that we're in? And I spent a lot of time working with an indigenous community in Northern California with whom. By whom I'm deeply inspired, and um, one of the guys that I work with most closely there is a traditional dip net fisherman. Talks about climate change as a strategic opportunity, and it's not because he's naive or uh, you know some uh, full of hopium. This is somebody who struggles, you know, very very hard on a daily basis um, in every realm you could imagine. But but for him, climate change is, an, is a strategic opportunity because finally there are large numbers of people who are. Waking up, and who are realizing that that we really are in a very dire situation. And so, if, if if this is, you can tell me after if this is what you were hoping to hear. But I think that we do need to talk about how the current system, you know, it is it is held in place by violence at at all kinds of levels. And back in 1989, when I took a first took a class on climate change, the faculty member and I was in college and so forth, talked about how there are all kinds of things that we can do that will make the world a better place now. And and those things are still there, you know, strengthening community, um, strengthening relationships, you know, being involved in activism as all kinds of things. And it can also be um, a, a place for very deep, meaningful relationships to be built um, and and for fun to be had. And, and we need to, not in a way of the hopium way, but we need to talk about what are the things that will come from the world not only in the future that we're working for but what, what is the meaning that we can have in it now I don't know if people um, read uh, Rebecca Solnit but she has a number of books that are really wonderful for this. She has a book, Hope in the Dark She also has a book called uh, Paradise Built in Hell where she talks about the meaning that comes um, and the, the community that's built in people in disaster recovery situations So. For me, on a somewhat personal level, um, my partner had cancer, and he's doing well now, but he, we, there was a period of time where we thought he wasn't going to live, and it was very, very difficult. And I am sure that many, if not all of you in the room, have some experience that you went through that was extremely, extremely difficult. So how do we handle those times? And for me, I had a very strategic focus on the good things that were coming from that experience. Not to say that we wanted to be in it, but what, how am I going to get through it on a daily basis? And part of how I did was by focusing on the things that were coming, even in that moment, from what was happening. So I, I don't know if that's part of of this, but um, but being in part of of working for the world that we want can be extremely meaningful, and it, it's the right thing to do even now in this moment, in addition to for the future. So I don't know if this is part of what you're... I wasn't familiar with the term that you had, but I think David was. The book
8: is called Out of the Wreckage, but I wanted to know in terms, maybe Chris could answer this, in terms of carbon capitalism, what are we going to do next? Mm. I don't care about capitalism, but all this growth that we've got, everything, the media always talks about growth, ABC, BBC, they're always talking about growth. So everything's... the foundation stone is growth. We can't go on with that. It's a finite planet. So who's got the ideas? Who's thinking about it? Just tell me. I'll go and interview them. But I I just don't get enough feeling that there's any think tanks that are really basically thinking not just how to communicate, but what are we going to do next? What's the restoration?
2: Yeah, I mean, the the whole decoupling um, economic growth from its environmental impacts is, is the sort of the main game. And when I mentioned hopium earlier, I think there was a lot of hopium around this idea that a market-based switch to renewable energy would result in this decoupling of emissions from economic growth. Um, Recent data suggests that's probably not the case and that you need far more dramatic sorts of interventions to try and um, wean growth from its... uh, economic growth, GDP growth from its its environmental impacts in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. So look, it's a, it's a devilish problem and there is no simple answer but I think this idea of a restoration narrative is interesting in terms of going back to sort of the point made earlier around well, what's the alternative to the fossil fuel driven economy and particularly Australia's sort of lock into coal, oil and gas, coal and gas. Uh, and there is huge potential there based around sort of what we used to do post-war, I guess, where the state would direct resources and investment and policy to drive the sort of change and innovation. We wanted to see the sort of Snowy Mountains sort of analogy, the sort of thing you saw in the US, the Roosevelt New Deal, this sort of idea that when we were faced with an existential crisis, we could sort of drive a centralised sort of response, which by all means wasn't ideal, but it sort of got us to where we sort of needed to be. And what we've lost is a faith in that. And maybe it's not even possible anymore, given changes in the media and communication. Um, But my own feeling is there is huge potential in Australia around that sort of shift in energy policy or an industry policy towards, um, you know, solar and wind, for Christ's sake. We've got so much solar and wind, we could be driving massive innovation there. But it's it's not having... Because there is no policy uh, consensus there on either side of politics to do that. It's all about the state stepping back from these sorts of things. I don't want to monopolize the conversation, but I also want
1: to add another piece of good news, which is actually what is achieved at a city level and a state level against the federal. So I think that now, finally, we have, and we were discussing this also last week, great examples also coming from California, for example, but at the city level especially. And this, is, this can be the start of a movement. So, you know, going like and, and be completely self-sufficient on solar and wind is certainly a great Uh, opportunity, but also achieving sustainability in city planning, for example, like in food planning uh, with the city. Um, These are major achievements at the same time. Um, What we haven't seen yet, for example, and this is a a huge issue, is um, that Within city planning, um, uh, the development of new server farms, for example, um, is not as sustainable as they, they want us to believe it is. And also, this is another major issue within transparency and communication systems, because it's very difficult for us to get information about what's happening, um, because it's all protected, obviously, uh, and by by secrets. And uh, so, it's a. Uh, um, but I can see that there is a change happening at the city and the local level and I think that probably the best inspiration that you can get at the moment is coming from there um, and uh, in Northern Europe as well you will see, so I mean I would you know, encourage you to, to look at those examples that are already there, the problem is really at the federal level very often I would say and also at the global level.
0: Mm-hmm. So. Can I ask uh, what radio station? 3CR Great to see the media here now we've got two more questions that we're going to close on, we'll take them I'll take them both first, and then refer back to the panel, so the lady down here and the gentleman up the back
5: hi um i'm going to try to speak because I lost my voice uh, two days ago um how How do you see um this is mostly a question regarding um kind of um like developed economies or richer nations, poorer developing nations and such and how how do you, you all or whoever would like to answer the question, see the co- commodification of ecologism in the popular media and this so-called opium that has been fed to public control in mm. mostly in nations of... Um, um, richer nations in which kind of ecologism is becoming really um, fashionable. Mm. And how can this... Being that being that activism is actually a privilege that not many are... Um, Really, that not many have the time for in nations such as where I come from in Ecuador in Latin America. How how can this discourse um, help kind of organizing movements that have perspectives both from these nations where ecologism is trendy, and nations that are still very much trying to catch up to the um, the Western standard of of development and economic growth.
0: Great question. And gentlemen gentleman up the
10: back. Thank you. Um, uh, my question is just, if we just decoupled that opening w- expression in your title of your book, Ca- Carbon Capitalisation, and just just stick to the capitalisation bit, um, I read in the uh, paper within the last couple of weeks, uh, the Pope went to visit A- Aung San Suu Kyi in Burma at a place, I, I, I don't know where it probably was, I don't, didn't recognise the was a place. Uh, and, but as the article proceeded, uh, it drew attention to the fact that as human rights, as regards the Rohingyas, was going that way, the capital that's pouring into Burma is, is going that way. And, and the first example they gave was of a 33 point something, I think that was the number, billion billion, billion uh, coal-fired power station close to the Thailand border or something, and, and whilst all the things that you know, have been proposed as uh, movements that can put a brake on all this sort of thing happening, capitalism is a, <laughs> so long as it exists, it, it grows uh, inevitably and I sound like a communist, but uh, is the only thing that 's going to save us from this and uh, because that example I gave more or less says yeah, Tony Abbott is right, Coal is going to be king for the next fifty years um, uh, is the only thing that 's going to save us is is a communist sort of theme <laughs> the, the 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 disintegration of capitalism.
3: Two great questions to finish off with. Whose who's game? Um, I was going to speak to your question. Sorry, I'm, I'm not sure I can address both of them since they're at, kind of, at different, somewhat different scales. But something you said um, struck me that I wanted to point out. You asked about the commodification of of the processes of saving the environment and activism. And one of the things that I've been working on a little bit and that I'm very concerned about are the ways that capitalism has colonized not only the fossil fuel and the entire economy and all of the narratives that we have, but is increasingly colonizing the responses to it as well. So not just through market mechanisms, which of course are part of what we need to overcome the contemporary conundrum that we're in, but even ideas that everything in the natural world can and should be identified and ranked according to an economic value and that we need to interact with them according to whatever values have been assigned. And this is how you get concepts like biodiversity offsets, where you say if you destroy one part of the, um, one part of the natural world, you can compensate for it in some place else by, by transforming something that was barren into a forest, for example. And, and you end up with these crazy ideas of, for example, offsetting koalas. Which i don 't know if you 're aware of, but are now an endangered species in Queensland and parts of New South Wales. Um, your children and your children you 're here will not ever see a koala at the rate that we 're going um, and the idea that we can just offset this by building gum trees somewhere outside of their natural habitat because they, that we 've made an equivalence in economic value becomes part of the ways that capitalism has colonized not just the way that the economy works, but our imaginations of how we get out of it. And so this is part of what we have to talk about in terms of a, another kind of narrative that that takes this idea that we commodify everything away from the ways that we think our way through this. The second thing that you asked is about what what is the potential for activism out there for people who are working full-time or students full-time. And I notice I'm an activist, I'm an anti-Adani activist, and I... I I go to a lot of activist things. Not as many as you do, David, but I I do. And what I notice is that everybody looks like me. Um, There are a lot of gray-haired people in this room and there are a lot of gray-haired people in the activist room. And I think that's part of what the fossil fuel companies count on is the idea that capitalism really grinds working people and young people into the ground. And the only people who have the time and the energy are people who are not actively participating in the capitalist economy, like retired people, which is how you get people like the knitting nanas who are able to draw on the moral authority of being grandmothers and being women, and also have the time because none of them are working anymore. Um, And it's one of the reasons the fossil fuel companies are winning, is because the people who are fighting them are are people like grandmothers, um, because everybody else is so beaten down by the capitalist economy, they just can't fight back.
2: I'd, I'd just add to that, really good points about, you know, the, the capitalist um, incorporation of, of environmental concerns and uh, a colleague and I have written a fair bit about how big corporations do that through a whole range of practices. But just in terms of the developing world, um, and I've, I've had several students from Bangladesh and places like that who've made the point to me, and I've seen it in Naomi Klein's film and other places, that there is a very vibrant um, uh, climate movement in the developing world and it's a fight for survival. I mean, and these people are working very hard, but they're putting their bodies on the line in, in quite precarious situations where, you know, there's a strong likelihood you will probably be shot by security forces if you protest a, a coal-fired coal power station in a part of India or, or Bangladesh, wherever it is. So the, the, the climate fight um, is not just, I think, happening in the affluent West amongst a sort of an affluent middle class, but there are large sections of uh, people in the impoverished countries of the world that see climate change as a fight here and now and in terms of the extreme weather events. And there's no debate about climate change whether it's happening. They know it's happening, and uh, they see it as a real fight for survival. So I think um, there, is, there is that happening, and we need to sort of acknowledge that and, and, and fight for those people as well, not just the, sort of the local fights that we, we're having in our own backyard.
4: Yeah, I mean, look, the commodification point is so important. Um, and, yeah, I mean, offsetting koalas... Right. What what is an offset to a koala actually look like? Or what about another one recently where someone bothered to go away and calculate that the Great Barrier Reef provided $1 trillion worth of ecosystem services? Oh, well, that's good. That means if we lose the reef, we can just go and find another provider of $1 trillion. It, it is so conceptually absurd. It's like something sort of dreamt up in a BBC comedy laboratory. It's just absolutely ludicrous. And I think actually one of the things we can do as people, as activists, academics, is just calling bullshit when we see it. Right, because part of, part of the ideology that has been sort of foisted upon us over the last decade is just this breeding of bullshit to try and say that the world is other than it is. We have marketing departments and we have communications advisors and we do almost anything to avoid describing the world actually as it is. We describe atrocity as innovation. We describe insecurity as opportunity. We're saying we're going to consult broadly with a wide range of stakeholders in order to generate win-win solutions to challenges, when what we really mean is the powerful are not going to talk to anybody and then do precisely what they wanted to do in the interest of the vested interests that are making the donations to their re-election campaigns. We live in an age of bullshit, and what we can do is what citizens in general, and I have to say Australians in particular, are very good at, which is calling out the bullshit when we see it. So... And that, that goes, frankly, beyond just the, the realm of um, the environment and global warming to things like universities and like the way we treat people who are the unemployed because of a set of structural decisions which leaves them unemployed, not because they choose it or because they lack initiative or any of the other nonsense. We can challenge it wherever we see it and we can challenge that drive to commodify all existence wherever we see it. It does violence to the nature of of who we are, of, of things, of the nature of life. Um, and it, as we're in the sort of moment of rounding up comments, so I want to make just say two final things. One is that this, I, I get, I'm, I'm very fortunate. I get paid to be an activist. I'm a very, very fortunate position. It's a humblingly fortunate position. I get to do quite a few panels like this one. It's rare though that I'm on a panel with, um, some people, such people who have provided such remarkable and useful and uh, insightful research that have actually enlivened and expanded the way in which I think about the work I have to do every day. So um, uh, in addition to the research that we're honouring this evening, I would also just really encourage you to read... Kari's book on um, the social organisation of denial. And, I mean, Chris's uh, jointly authored book on on capitalism and climate is the best book book I have read, which explains why you simply cannot ever trust anything that is ever described as a business-led solution to climate change. Um, And that is not because I'm anti-business, but it is because I think it's very appropriate to have an entirely dispassionate view of what amoral, profit-maximising entities are like in the real world. And the final thing to say is... So I get it, right? I get it that there are worried, deeply worried people in this room, and yes, I am one of them. So I just ask you to reflect on this. There are, I don't know what, about 100 of us in this room. Think about how much power that represents think about how much power that represents. Think about in terms of organisational power. Think about who you know, who you can influence, who your friends are, who your family are, what networks you're part of. Think about the skills you have. Think about the experience you have. Think about the fact that you're not alone. The fact that despite there being this narrative that has again been driven onto us that we are alone in the world, that we are not that we have friends. That to quote Josh Fox, community is mightier than the storm. Think about even the resources, the material resources at at our disposal. We put in a hundred bucks each. We've got a ten thousand dollar fighting fund. We put in ten hours each. Think about the the amount of time that gives us. That is power, folks. And that is what all the time we are being told we do not have, but we do have it. And that is why, although there will be losses along the way and dreadful things are and will continue to happen, we will triumph.
0: Oh, well, I'll have the last word then. I'm going to quote John Bellamy Foster, who reviewed this fabulous book. And he did refer to the very alliterative title. So I don't know who to congratulate for that. Benedetta or Graham Murdoch, co-editor, who we need to give a big round of applause <laughs> to too. I'm sure Graham can hear us. He's in Loughborough University in the UK. I'm sure he can hear us, though. Uh, I'd like to quote John Bellamy Foster, as I said, who, who tells us that this book addresses what might be seen as the six Cs that are coming to define the struggle over global warming in our time. The message of the distinguished contributors... Many of whom you've met today. To this book is clear. If the world is to confront climate change, we must alter the current political, economic, hegemonic and in communications most of all. So please join me in giving a very warm thank you to Terry, Chris, Benedetta, David and Kari. And thank you audience for excellent questions and for coming out on a rainy night.